Well, good morning. It is always a pleasure to be gathered together with you as a local church, worshiping the Lord in song and, and through the preaching of his word. Our text for this morning is Psalm 11, but before we get to reading the psalm, I'd like to remind us of an important distinction that is good for us to make when we sit down to read the Bible for ourselves or for our families, or, or even when we're gathered here together and we're sitting under the preaching of God's word. And that distinction I want us to remember is the difference between illustration and application. When it comes to personal Bible study, there are several approaches uh, people have found fruitful over the years. Uh, many of us in the room this morning may be familiar with the COMA method, C-O-M-A. Uh, that's taking a passage of scripture and, and working through it and taking note of context, observations, meaning, and application. And truth be told, preparation for a sermon comes together in much the same way. I just finished a preaching course as part of my seminary studies, and, and the very basic, bare-bones definition of preaching that we were working with was explaining the text in its context and then bringing that to bear in the lives of people. And we can actually see some of the coma method in that very bare-bones description. A, a, sermon to get, a sermon comes together through understanding the text in its context, explaining what it means, and then showing people how it applies to their lives today. It, it takes what God intended to communicate to his people in the past and shows how it's just as relevant for his people today, because God has not changed. We as people have not changed. So the application of, of God's word is a timeless blessing to the souls of his people. That said, when we are reading the Bible for ourselves or for our families, when we are sitting under the preaching of God's word, it is important for us to maintain that distinction between illustration and application. They're two different things, and, and we can run into trouble if we try to equate them in our minds. There's a, 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 an example I think will be helpful for us from, from Jesus' own preaching. Jesus used a lot of illustrations as he was preaching and teaching. His sermon library included a lot of parables, and that's exactly what parables are. They are illustrations of spiritual truths that, that Jesus wanted his disciples to know and believe. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable, and he used the illustration of a merchant and pearls. He taught, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, if we were to ask ourselves, what is Jesus teaching in this section of Matthew 13, we would be missing the point if we answered, pearl merchants should be on the lookout, ready to buy at a moment's notice. While it's true that Jesus was referencing pearls and merchants, he wasn't really talking about pearls and merchants. The point of that parable isn't that merchants should have their eyes open for valuable pearls. The point of that parable isn't even that you are required to sell all that you own to find your place in the kingdom of heaven. The parable is the supreme value of Jesus. It is about the otherworldly glory of the kingdom of heaven and that, that for those who have the eyes to see it, they joyfully abandon any gain that the world might offer and, and they affectionately enjoy the rule and reign of God in the person and work of Jesus. The point of the parable is self-denying, cross-carrying, Christ-treasuring discipleship. And in that way, the application is vastly different from the illustration. As we turn to Psalm 11 and, and consider that as our text today, we are going to find the same dynamic at work. 
Psalm 11 was written by David in a time of crisis. And as we'll see when we read through it, the crisis is described in terms of foundations being destroyed. Now, now believe me when, I'm, when I say, I'm not trying to be, be cute by squeezing this in here, and I'm not even trying to be cute by the fact that I selected Psalm 11 to preach this morning. I initially landed on it several weeks ago because the last verse struck me as a powerful revelation of God's truth. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. But as I sat down to do the work of trying to explain this text in its context and then bring that to bear, the, the crisis that David was facing in the psalm was unavoidable. Foundations were in jeopardy, and what the text actually means by that is the foundations of society. Everything that gives shape to life as people know it and experience it together. There was a crisis that threatened Israel's pillars of government and commerce, politics, economics, even morality. All of the underpinnings of an orderly kingdom. So as we work through the text this morning, I'm not naive enough to believe that you won't find some very timely illustrations from the year 2020 that parallel the concerns expressed in this psalm. But I am compelled by the word of God to implore you not to take those illustrations as your application. Just as the parable of the pearls is not about profitable merchants, Psalm 11 is not about 21st century America. It is however, about being unshakably convinced that the just and sovereign God in heaven reigns, no matter the circumstances, even when the foundations, foundations are shaken. And with that, um, I would ask you to open your Bibles now to Psalm 11, um, and, and to please also stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. May it be received among us as such. And you may be seated as we join together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, we pray to you in trying times. We, we pray to you as many perceive the foundations of all that is orderly are being shaken. And we come before you humbly this morning and we ask for your help. We ask for a measure of your wisdom to make sense of what we see around us. We pray 
that we would be a people quick to remember the glories of the gospel? Teach us. Teach us, Lord, that were it not for your grace, we would still be standing in the shoes of the people we're so often quick to pass judgment on. At the same time, we pray for your help to make us righteously bold. Let us not shrink back from proclaiming that the end of hostility and the beginning of peace are blessings bought by the blood of Jesus. Let us not move forward without joining that proclamation to genuine love, love that's serious about the dignity of people made in your image because we're serious about you, our God, our creator, our redeemer, our friend. As your word is preached this morning, I ask that you would use it for your glory, that your spirit would do your work in strengthening your saints and calling those outside your fold to their blessed home, joining your regenerate people in praising the name of the only one who can save. We ask all these things in that very name, the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In the Lord, I take refuge. Psalm 11 opens in medias res. In medias res is a Latin term meaning in the middle of things. It's a a common term in the realms of, of literature and film. It describes a story that opens and immediately transports you into the middle of the action. Imagine you were watching a movie about the flood and it opened in medias res. The very first thing you would see is Noah and his family. They're huddled together, flanked by animals of every kind. Thuds of thunder and heavy rain are echoing through the wooden beams that surround them. Perhaps the the camera pans back. You see what's going on outside of the ark. Whipping winds are, are making waves that wash over every inch of land that you can see. It is sending plants, animals, and even people that are outside the ark to a watery grave. From the very first scene, you as the viewer are in the middle of things. Of course, there is a context to it all. There is an entire chain of events that landed this man and his family on a boat as the heavens opened and and emptied their storehouses of rain. And and the movie's going to get there. It'll flash back and fill you in on what could have possibly led to this cataclysmic event. But for now, there you are in the middle of it. We see the same thing happening when we turn to the opening verse of Psalm 11. It starts with David making a statement in response to men who were offering him counsel. Verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? It's clear here that David is being advised to flee. Psalm 11 is opening against a backdrop of circumstances in which David's closest associates are pleading with him to seek safer ground in the mountains. And and much like a movie that's going to fill in the details as it goes, we start to get a clearer picture of these circumstances as we read on in the psalm. So let's expand our view, reading through verse 3. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations 
are destroyed, what can the righteous do? As David reiterates the counsel he's received from his advisors, the the context of the scene begins to come into focus. The order of events is a bit more clear. If we were to think about these things sequentially, we'd see that David and his men are in the midst of a crisis. They're in danger, and his men are pressing him. They say, David, now is the time to flee. As a bird on the branch seeks safety somewhere else, when its perch is shaken, now's the time to head for the hills. The arrows of the wicked are aimed and ready. Their bows have been pulled to the point of tension, and their sights are set on the destruction of all that is orderly and good. What are the righteous left to do when the lawless have seized the day? David's response to this is quite simple. It's what we read as the psalm opened in Medias race. He looks at his men and he asks them, how can you say that to my soul? Is this what I keep you around for? Is this the great advice that you have to offer me? I understand that the bows are bent and the arrows are ready. I understand that wicked men are scheming in the night to undermine the order of the kingdom, but what are the righteous to do? How can you say that to my soul? The Lord is my refuge. When every orderly pillar is shaken, my great hope is not in the counter schemes of men. My great hope is in the Lord. He is my refuge, and that is the message that I'll be preaching to myself, to my own soul, even when every voice around me forgets it. What can the righteous do? I'll tell you, they can run, but not to the mountains. They can run to remember the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of heaven. He has not left his throne, nor has he abandoned his people. That's the message David preaches to his soul. And that's what we see in the remaining verses of Psalm 11. In the Lord, I take refuge. Again, like a movie that fills in the details as it goes, verses 4 through 7 supply the why behind what David says in verse 1. Why is he so steadfast in claiming that the Lord is his refuge? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. There is a bedrock of unshakable truth that allows David to run to the Lord as his ultimate refuge. It is the truth about who God is and what he will do for the sake of his name. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Remember that it was David's son Solomon who was responsible for constructing the big, magnificent structure we tend to think of when we hear the word temple. But that's after David's time. So Solomon's temple is not what he has in mind when he's writing Psalm 11. Considering the context and the fact that 
Hebrew poetry makes frequent use of parallelism, which is making one point by saying it two different ways, one after another. Verse 4 is written to lift our eyes, not to the physical temple, but to the dwelling place of God Almighty. Unlike the perches of men and worldly kingdom, which can be shaken at the branch, the one true living God is unshakably perched on his heavenly throne. There he dwells in his holy abode. There is no one higher, no one loftier. There is no one who's set apart like the Lord of heaven. He is transcendent in every sense of the word, and yet he is neither ignorant nor inactive when it comes to the conduct of the children of man. Why can David so confidently run to the Lord as his refuge? Because the transcendent king of heaven is on his unshakable throne and... Verse 4 again. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The word test in these verses carries the idea of an examination. Though the God of heaven is untouchably transcendent, he is acutely aware of and involved with his creatures. His eyes see. He is active in examining the children of man. And even when it seems that he has turned his attention to other things, even when it seems that his watch has lapsed as the wicked seem to have their way, rest assured, his eyelids are just as capable of putting men to the test. This is, this is poetic language, of course. We know from Psalm 121 that he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. But it works together with what was described in verse 2 that the wicked aim to wound under the guise of darkness. This reference then to God's eyelids reinforces that nothing escapes his impeccable purview. He sees it all. He is not blind to wickedness and violence. In fact, his soul, the Lord's soul, hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In the Lord I take refuge. Stick with me as we're piecing this together. How can David run to the Lord when the pillars of his kingdom are being pulled out from under him? The Lord is high and lifted up. His throne is exalted and reigning upon it, he sees all that occurs among the kingdoms of man. He is aware of every wicked deed. He sees every act of violence. His soul burns with hatred for all of it. And, verse 6, let him rain coals on the wicked, Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Not only does the God of heaven burn with hatred for every expression of wickedness and violence, he takes just action. He must. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The word translated as righteous deeds in verse 7 could just as well be translated righteousness or justice. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. I, 
I, I know that's a very loaded word right now. And this is not me just trying to shoehorn it in here. There is a deep, deep connection between righteousness and justice. Not just in the Hebrew language, but in God's own purpose for why humans are here on this planet. For why you and I were created. God himself is perfectly just. And he made man and woman in his image and commissioned them to image his character. To represent him. To be about the things that he loves and is as they cultivated the world and exercised dominion over it. And if Adam and Eve had gone about the business of subduing the earth according to the standards of God's character, they would have succeeded in imaging him properly. They would have represented him well. They would have cultivated the world while exercising justice. They would have fulfilled their God-given commission in righteousness. Their lives would have told the truth about God and who he is and what he is like, the God in whose image they were wonderfully made, and all creation would have seen their good deeds and praised their Father in heaven. We know... That's not what happened, though. Instead of subduing the world, Adam and Eve were subdued by it. They were deceived by the serpent. They saw fruit that was a delight to their eyes, and it was desirable for wisdom. They took it. They ate it. Their lives became wicked. They denied the authority of their creator, and they told a lie to his creation about who he is and what he was like. The actions of Adam and Eve did not image the righteous character of God. The actions of David's assailants did not image the righteous character of God. And the sinful actions you and I so freely give ourselves to fall far short of imaging the righteous character of God. The Lord is in heaven. He is keenly aware of every thought, word, and deed. His soul hates the wicked and loves righteousness. He loves justice. So what does the God of justice do as he examines the children of man falling short of his glory? He starts filling cups. Verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked... Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The Lord in heaven does not sit idly by as the men and women made in his image lie to the world about who he is and what he is like. He sees, he examines, and when wicked deeds are done, he fills the cup prepared for sinners with his just judgment and wrath. The cups that read Adam and Eve were filled with judgment for their sin. The cups of David's enemies were filled with judgment for their bow-bending, string-setting sedition. The cup that reads, Matt Erdman was filled with judgment for all my sin, and the cup with your name on it was just as full. David himself had a cup that was filled with judgment for adultery and murder. So how does he have any confidence to declare that the Lord is his refuge? How does he take any comfort in appealing to the justice of God for the judgment of his enemies without thinking that any of it is coming for him? 
How is he so sure that the upright will behold God's face? Answer, because he knows the scripture. David was correct when he wrote, the Lord's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. But he also knows the testimony that Moses delivered in Exodus 34, when after receiving the second tablets of God's holy law, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Abounding in love, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord is perfectly just, and his justice demands that every sinner's cup be filled as it ought to. The Lord is also abounding in steadfast love. And his love has ordained that not one of his people ever so much as sip from the cup of their own judgment. If that rings in your ears like the sound of good news, that's because that's exactly what it is. That is good news. That is the gospel. Though men and women made in the image of God fell infinitely short of their commission, there was one who was born who did not fall short. He was given the name Jesus. As a man, he imaged God perfectly among us because he was God among us. Jesus Christ, the second person of the eternal triune God, had took on flesh and was born as a man in Bethlehem. He was fully God, so that in him we might see the perfect image of the Lord described in Exodus 34. That we might know divine mercy, divine grace, steadfast love as it was imaged among us. He was also fully man, so that he could stand in the place of cup holders like you and me. The Lord, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord's justice demands that every sinner's cup be filled as it ought to, but his love ordains that none of his people put their cup to their lips because every cup of judgment that belongs to God's people was put to the lips of Jesus. On the cross, he drank every cup of judgment for sin for those who would be united to him by faith. If you have been born again by the Spirit of God and are wed to Christ Jesus by living faith, then right now, today, you have no cup of judgment of which to speak. It has been emptied by the covenant faithfulness of Christ. You are among the upright who shall behold God's face. As the one who stood in your place, Christ is credited with your sin. He drinks your cup, and you are credited with his perfect God-imaging righteousness. Man's commission is finally fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. God's love and justice are upheld perfectly in the person and work of Jesus. That's the Lord in whom I take refuge. And David did too. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
how can you say that to my soul? In the Lord I take refuge. He is actively reigning from his heavenly throne. He sees and examines the children of man. He is righteous and just and will fill the cup of every evildoer with fire. But the upright in Christ shall behold his face. Right before we stood for the reading of God's word this morning, I offered a preview of what Psalm 11 was was really about. I said it's about being unshakably convinced that the just and sovereign God in heaven reigns. And I wanted to make that distinction to avoid any inclination that, that Psalm 11 was somehow about the current events going on in our country. It's not. And, and now that we've worked our way through the text, there are two more distinctions about what Psalm 11 is not that are important for us to talk about. First, Psalm 11 is not about staying put when you are in danger because you're trusting God as your refuge instead. My great fear is that a sermon on Psalm 11, this one or any sermon on Psalm 11, might be misunderstood by someone who due to abuse that is taking place in the home, finds themselves or their children in danger. The fear is that they might look to David and misunderstand and lead them to say about their own situation, the Lord is my refuge, there's no need for me to flee like a bird to the mountains. If you find yourself in that situation, please hear from me. Yes, the Lord is your refuge. Yes, put your trust in him, but please, please also find a place where you and your children can be safe. Staying put in the face of real danger, and I'm not saying David was not in real danger, but staying put in the face of real danger is not an application of Psalm 11. Secondly, Psalm 11 is not about passivity toward appropriate measures which push back upon evil in this world while trusting God as your refuge instead. What can the righteous do? In an ultimate sense, all things will be made right by God who reigns on his heavenly throne. And yet, when the foundations are shaking, there are God-honoring ways that the people of Christ can seek to stabilize the pillars. Many Christians are actively engaged in efforts to protect and defend children who might otherwise be aborted and the mothers who carry them. When conducted in a just and loving manner, those are appropriate, God-honoring efforts to stabilize foundations being shaken by the wicked. Passivity in the face of wickedness and violence is not an application of Psalm 11. Psalm 11 is about being unshakably convinced that the just and sovereign God in heaven reigns no matter the circumstances, even when the foundations are shaken. If you are anything like me, you likely feel um, that one day, four or so months ago, you woke up in Medias race as part of a story you didn't even know was being written. The day before probably seemed like just another Wednesday, but then there was a whole new normal to adjust to. No more school, no more sports, no more toilet paper. Life in the midst of, of pandemic was shaky enough, and then all of the political issues surrounding it started pitting folks against one another. 
It was shaky. And, and there were real concerns on every side about how these things would change society moving forward. And things calmed down a little bit. Things started to, to slowly back, uh, open back up in the state of Wisconsin. And, and at that time, we had probably thought that we had made it through the shakiest months of the year, but we were wrong. As if it was needed, we turned on the news, and, and, and from all sides, we've seen more than enough to confirm that people today remain unchanged, uh, unchanged from people in the time of David. There's wickedness, there's violence on every side, and it is shaky. And there are real concerns about these things and how they could or even should change society moving forward. My prayer for us today, though, is that wherever these very real thoughts take your minds in terms of an illustration of what we see in Psalm 11, that we would not lose sight of the text's true application. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The righteous take refuge in the gospel of Jesus. The Lord is my refuge. He reigns, he sees, and justice will be served because the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. That is the message I will preach to my soul because so few will do it in a world that is shaky. Christian friends, the news will not preach the gospel to your soul Facebook isn't preaching the gospel to your soul. Politicians aren't preaching the gospel to your soul. And the stock market won't do it either. Christian friends, the scriptures will preach the gospel to your soul. Your blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ will preach the gospel to your soul. And ultimately, you will preach the gospel to your own soul and the souls of your family. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Run to the gospel. Run to the cross. Run to where love and justice meet in the person and work of Jesus. Beholding his face is not a matter of how shaky or how stable your circumstances are. It is a matter of his gospel and the willingness with which you run to remember it. So run to him. Run over and over and over and over. And let no one say anything different to your soul. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the glory of your gospel. You justly filled the cup of my judgment and you lovingly drank it down to the dregs. We thank you that you have done that for every person you have saved. And we plead with you this morning to save even more. If there is anyone listening this morning who has not turned to you in faith, we pray that you would shake them to their core with an understanding of their sin and the cup that awaits all who do not have you as their gracious substitute. Give them eyes to see your unlimited perfections and a heart that yearns to worship you for all that you've done. We love you, Lord. We want to love you more. Help us to run to your gospel more and more over and over. Amen.